Turn in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 3. We are going to be in verses 1 to 6. Two messages this week and next week. The ambassador of the king, part 1, part 2, all about John the Baptist, who he was, why he ministered the way he ministered, and much more. There's important truths here. Not just about John the Baptist, but about what it means to live for Christ and how to be somebody who points to Christ in all that you do. And so if you will, stand one final time. Let's read verses 1 to 6 together. We stand in reverence for God's Word, believing when we read the Scriptures, God is literally speaking to us through them. Let's give Him honor now and read His Word together. Now in those days, John the Baptist came preaching in the wilderness of Judea, saying, Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. For this is the one referred to by Isaiah, the prophet, when he said, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, Make ready the way of the Lord. Make his paths straight. Now John himself, he had a garment of camel's hair and a leather belt around his waist, and his food was locusts and honey, wild honey at that. Then Jerusalem was going out to him, and all Judea, and all the district around the Jordan. And they were being baptized by him in the Jordan River as they confessed their sins. That is God's word to us today. You may be seated. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, use the preaching of your word and the hearing of your word today to convict us and to sharpen us. We know that in a room with a wide variety of individuals, there will be a wide variety of contexts. And so we need the Holy Spirit's help to apply these truths in whatever specific way you would have us. I pray for our church family that we wouldn't just hear the word, but we would do it, that we would go out today and into tomorrow and the rest of this week eager to live all out for Christ our Savior. Thank you for the work that you've already been doing. I pray and praise you for the equip class, that you would soften hearts, that we would be a a forgiving church, knowing that those who have been forgiven much ought to and can forgive much. Fill us with a, a zeal and a passion and a courage to stand in your truth and on your truth in these dark days. Help me to be a servant now to my brothers and my sisters. Open their hearts and their minds and their ears to hear what you would say to them through your word and open our eyes collectively to your truth. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. I remember meeting with a young man who wanted to be in ministry a number of years ago. And if needed, I know there's some folks still looking for seats, You can clear all my stuff there. I don't need three seats and water bottles and all that. You take the front row and don't be shy. You can too. (laughs) I'm meeting with a young man many, many years ago. He wanted to be in ministry. And the first time I met him, true story, verbatim quote, walks up to me on a Sunday in a church lobby and says, Hello, sir. It's a pleasure to meet you. Will you be my Paul? And can I please be your Timothy? Very interesting way to introduce yourself to your, your new pastor or your new friend. He was a younger man, about 17, 18 years old. 
And honestly, it was refreshing. I really appreciated the, the boldness. I appreciated the humility. I, I liked the Paul-Timothy reference. Paul, of course, a, a spiritual mentor in the faith to Timothy, who was his protege and son in the faith. And it was supposed to be this pastor-intern kind of relationship. And so I thought, awesome. I'm going to give you all the smoke. Put it on you. You want to be in ministry? You want to be Timothy? Let's go. He followed me around. He, he hung on my every word. But he eventually failed to do the basic things to train for Christian ministry. And he eventually failed to even be interested in the basic things to train for Christian ministry. Uh, he took no interest in study, no interest in writing assignments or theology, and really no interest in the gospel and holy living. One day when he was very disappointed in, in the program in general, uh, we sat down together and he expressed his disappointment in, in all of it. And I said, where have I failed to meet your expectations? Where have I let you down? Where can I grow and be better? What have I missed here? You seem really disinterested and now I see that you're frustrated with your ministry training. He said, and I quote, I thought you were going to show me how to become an influencer. I wanted to build a ministry. And I said, what do you mean? You begin to explain social media and, and you know, being able to, to basically live what I would just call the blue check mark life. He wanted to be an influencer. He wanted to build something. He, he was obsessed with kind of this modern idea, you know, the, the wannabe Sadie Robertsons. It's like you have four followers, but you're, you know, at the real, and then it's your name. Like we really needed to know it was the real you. That was the way he viewed ministry. And I remember explaining to him that I was teaching him about influence, and I was trying to show him how to quote-unquote build a ministry, and that it has nothing to do with what you see in the world of quote-unquote influencers, but it is about being a servant who knows Christ and preaches Christ and ultimately points to Christ, that the way up is down. If you want to be first, you need to be last. If you want a title, you pick up a towel. That's how Christian ministry, and really, let's not limit it there. So those of you in the room that think, well, I'm not really a pastor. This is applied to me. Yes, it's the whole Christian life, by the way. For all of us, that is the way we are to view life as a Christian. And church, there is no greater example than how to be an ambassador. That's what it is. You're not a brand ambassador, if you will. You're a spiritual ambassador to a king named Christ. There's no greater example of this than the life and ministry of John the Baptist. He represents what ministry and true Christianity is all about. And when we look at his life and we look at what Matthew brings to the surface, and in turn also we're going to cross-reference with Luke and some other gospel narratives, what we find immediately is a convicting look at what it means to play set-up man or set-up woman to who? To Christ. That all of life is for that purpose. If you wanted the theme of the next two weeks, just in one modern application for your life and for mine, it's this. Your life and my life is not about you and it's not about me. 
That's it. Your life is not about you, period. John the Baptist, he lived with that in mind. I want to answer two questions in this sermon, and then we'll finish off next time. The first is, who was John the Baptist? And the second, what did he preach? Let's look at that first one together. Who was John the Baptist? In verse 1, right off the bat, now in those days, John the Baptist came. It's the first time we come into contact with this sort of name, John the Baptist. So who is he? And really, when is all of this taking place? In those days, it's about a 30-year jump from where we were last. Christ, now an adult, about to begin his public ministry, and a man named John the Baptist comes. He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea, and, and we'll get to what he preached and, and what was happening out there in the wilderness, but first, I want to understand who is this one that we would affectionately call the Baptist. In order to get a real good picture of this, I want you to turn over to the Gospel of Luke, and we're going to use Luke's narrative of John's birth as a way to get to know our dear friend, the Baptist. Like Christ, John's birth story loaded with significance. It's given a ton of attention in the Gospel of Luke, and for good reason. All of this ties to the Messiah and the proof that Jesus was who the prophets foretold would come. Look at verses 5 to 25 in Luke chapter 1. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, so same time frame as Christ, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So right away, Zacharias is John the Baptist's dad, and Elizabeth is John the Baptist's mom. They were both righteous in the sight of God. They walked blamelessly in all the commandments and the requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, verse 7. Elizabeth was barren, and they were both advanced in years. So they're old, she's barren, can't have children. And in verse 8, it happened that while he was performing the priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division... According to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. So this is a huge deal. If you do it wrong, there's divine punishment. Not at all a simple thing. If you're chosen to do this, you're going in with shaky knees. God, throughout the Old Testament, told the priests how things were to be done. If they weren't done right, they would be killed. When one was killed, it was because he was not a purified vessel, a holy vessel. He was not right to be doing that duty, and so they would pull him out, and it was next man up. So I want you to picture for Zacharias, he's going in to perform his priestly duty, and he's not exactly skipping in to the holy of holies. Jump down to verse 12, actually 11. An angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. First thought. You're in there. Your knees are shaken. You're there to perform a very serious priestly duty. An angel of the Lord shows up. You're not thinking this is good. You're essentially waiting to drop dead. Which is why the angel says, don't be afraid, Zacharias. Your petition has been heard. That, that prayer you've been praying, basically, with your wife, we've heard you. Your wife, Elizabeth, will bear you a son. 
and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will, this is so key, verse 16, he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to the Lord their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah. And then here's the quote, to turn the hearts of the fathers back to the children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Now, Zacharias in verse 18 responds, In a way that probably I would hope you and I would not respond, he says, how will I know this is for certain? I feel like, Zacharias, you're you're talking with an angel in the Holy of Holies. I think we're good on whether or not something miraculous could happen, but no matter, I'm an old man. My wife is advanced in years. (coughs) Excuse me. The angel of the Lord answers and says to him, I'm Gabriel. So you're not just talking to any angel, you're talking to Gabriel. And you decide to question Gabriel. I've been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. Verse 20. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. So it's Gabriel here, without reading too much of his his sense of humor into it, it, he basically says to Zacharias, now you're not going to talk the baby is about to arrive. So you're going to remember this for the rest of your life and everybody else will. You shouldn't have questioned me. I'm Gabriel, by the way. But don't worry. It'll all unfold just as prophecy foretold. It's this moment in which we see the significance of the event. Now skip over to verses 39 to 45. And we see here the relationship now between Mary and Elizabeth. Mary, the mother of Jesus, pregnant with Jesus, and Elizabeth, pregnant with John. Now at this time, Mary arose and went in a hurry to the hill country. This is right after Jesus' birth is foretold to a city of Judah. Entered the house of Zacharias and greeted Elizabeth. And when Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, leapt for my grammarians. And Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit, and she cried out with a loud voice and said, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the fruit of your womb. And how has it happened to me that the mother of my Lord would come to me? Elizabeth already believed that the baby inside of Mary was her Lord. For behold, when the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby leapt in my womb for joy, and blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what had been spoken to her by the Lord. All of this highlighting the prophetic fulfillment that the Messiah would come. But there's an important note here, and it's in verse 36. And behold, even your, quote, relative Elizabeth has also conceived a son in her old age. If you want to, you could circle that word relative. We get a good idea of the relationship between Mary and Elizabeth. The word relative can translate cousin, a relative of some sort, but basically they would have known each other. And so in a sense, you could imagine that John and Jesus would have grown up with some knowledge of one another in some level of proximity to one another, which is why later on when Jesus is baptized, 
John's sign, the sign he's told to look for, is when the dove descends on this one, that is the one. And when he sees him, in a sense, he knows him. He knows who he is. And now he sees the confirmation of heaven upon Christ at his baptism. And we'll get to all that, but you begin to just see the relational proximity here that God is doing something very special, very unique, and very purposeful. Go over to verse 57. We see John born. The time had come for Elizabeth to give birth, and she gave birth to a son. Her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had displayed his great mercy toward her, and they were rejoicing with her. And it happened that on the eighth day they came to circumcise the child, and they were going to call him Zacharias after his father. But his mother answered and said, No, indeed, but he shall be called John. And they said to her, there's no one among your relatives who's called by that name. And they made signs to his father as to what he wanted him called. You can just imagine Zacharias here. He can't talk. Any men, imagine, very significant moment. You really have an opinion. It's time to speak, and you can't. You're going nuts. Give me a tablet. That's what they do. And he writes, his name is John. Now, Elizabeth already knew because she says in verse 60, no, indeed, he shall be called John. So at some point when Zacharias can't talk, in his own home he's telling Elizabeth, John, 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 fight for the name, I'm telling you, if I can't talk still when he's here. The angel has kept his tongue sealed now even after. I could just imagine all the way up until the eighth day in the circumcision, he's thinking, okay, so it's delivery day. You're going to loosen my tongue now? Nope. All right, baby's here. Now? Nope. Now we're moving all the way until the eighth day, and there it is right in verse 64, and at once his mouth was opened, his tongue is loosed, and he began to speak in praise to God. Fear came on all those living around them, and all these matters are being talked about in all the hill country of Judea. All who heard them kept in mind, saying, what then will this child turn out to be? For the hand of the Lord was certainly with him. That is John's pre-birth prophecies, his birth, his life, all of it, anything but ordinary. He was marked by God, filled with the Holy Spirit in the womb, something not normal except for those marked out for a prophetic assignment. He's called the Baptist because he's primarily known for baptizing people in the Jordan River. And his birth and his life are significant. In fact, we get good insight into John's whole family dynamic and the way that his parents were, the lineage of this family. In Luke 1, verse 76, if you'll turn there for the final leg of this tour through the first chapter of Luke to get a good character study on John, you see Zacharias now filled with the Holy Spirit as well. And he prophetically summarizes his son's life. And if you'll look in verses 76 to 80 of, of Luke 1, listen to this father speaking of his son. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. For, that's because, you will go on before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give his people the knowledge of salvation by the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, with which the sunrise from on high will visit us to shine upon those who sit in darkness and the shadow 
of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And the child continued to grow and to become strong in spirit. And he lived in the deserts until the day of his public appearance to Israel. I mean, just answering the question, who is John? I think there's a number of things that we could begin to think about and apply. Not only has God preserved the Messiah, his servant, as we saw through the birth narrative and the conception and his protection of Jesus and the family from Herod and his slaughter of babies, but he's also appointed and preserved his forerunner, the prophet who would come and clear the way and prepare the way for the Messiah, his setup man, if you will, and his closer, the one who comes to prepare and the one who comes to fulfill, both of them perfectly ordered and ordained to fulfill what God has called them to. I believe there's another challenge here, though, for us as we assess our own life and for every parent in the room, the way that you're directing your family and the way that you're living your life. If this was us, if your child or my child were set apart by God to do something significant, would we rejoice in the duty or discourage it? And this could apply to anything, not just if your children want to be in ministry or you want them in ministry or maybe you don't want them in ministry, but in any aspect of life, there's a spectrum of responses to this statement. I believe God is calling me to take a bold stand for his glory. In the business world, right away, you're going to be told, hey, love it, it's good, but take it easy. In education sectors, hey, that's awesome. In the privacy of your own home. But maybe be careful that you don't lose your job or get sued. In all other facets of life, we kind of have this tiptoe mentality where we, we, we are looking for acceptance from the world and to sort of ease into it and yet still live as Christ followers. But this can go further into the conversation about ministry and fulfilling your mandate as a great commission saint. I meet parents at times and have talked to parents in the past. They're scared to death of their kid growing up to be in ministry or, you know, the sentiment, which I do not agree with. It's man's wisdom to say, hey, if you could do anything other than ministry, you know, do it. I don't agree. You look through church history and you look through the Bible, and it's not about being specific and trying to control people in their future. You don't want to force people into pastoral ministry either. It's this. Hey, and whatever you do, You pursue Christ all in, all out, all the way. He will open the doors he wants open. And as he does, don't you dare look back at me looking for any type of uh, tiptoe discouragement or or be careful there, son. No, I'm going to tell you, burst through. When he opens the door, you go. When he closes them, be content. But the idea that you keep going until God gives you the clear no, that's the mentality we should encourage. Why do I bring all that up? Look at Zacharias. He's so excited that his son is what? He's the backup quarterback. He's the setup man. He's the forerunner. Your job is to clear the debris. And we'll see next week, by the way, that it's not easy at all. He has to deal with the Pharisees and the religious leaders. You'll see by later on in the Gospels, he loses his head for his views on marriage, by the way. You think John the Baptist was killed for preaching the Gospel? He wasn't. He called out the king 
on an unbiblical, adulterous affair and a relationship that never should have been had. That's why he got his head cut off, by the way. And there's a lesson here, a big one, that all of us are in Christian ministry to some degree. All of us should be encouraged forward. Will God put you, some of you, in the business sphere? Yes, praise God for that. Your calling and mandate is to live all out as a bold witness. When people look at you, they should say, that's a Christian. And it looks like the Bible and it looks like Christ. I don't agree with it, but I sure do respect that he or she is consistent. When they see somebody in ministry, they don't see somebody trying to play the influencer game and live in both worlds and please the crowd and please the world, but somebody who's all in, even if they look a little weird. And that really is it. We should look different than the world. Every gift, every dollar, every resource, every ambition, every opportunity, all of it is to be used by you and me for one purpose, to point to Christ. That is the only reason you and I are here, by the way. All of it for Christ. It is a demotion to be given a voice and to settle for some you know, Taylor Swift lifestyle. No, you've been given a voice to sing praises to God. It's a demotion to have been given strong leadership gifts and to use them only for yourself. It's a demotion to be given some level of influence or the ability to teach or creative ideation and the ability to just take an idea from nothing and turn it into something. All of that is given by God so that you would live for him and his glory. It is your life for his purpose. This is how we influence and prepare the world for his kingdom. And this is what John did. It's not necessarily about who you are or, or what role you have, but using what God has given you. And for John, God gave him a voice. He gave him a megaphone. And he gave him a fearless zeal. And he gave him a message. And so what did he preach? With his father and mother overjoyed that their son would be the forerunner what did he preach? He's preaching in the wilderness of Judea saying, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. The word, trans the word translates near. Now preaching in the wilderness of Judea, it's significant, I believe, for three reasons we can surmise from the text and from uh, coalescing other texts. Number one, God prepares his servants in similar ways. Why the wilderness? Jesus in the wilderness tempted, and when he overcomes the temptation, it's an affirmation of who he was, that he was tempted but without sin and had total control and authority over the enemy. The prophets in the wilderness. Paul actually goes out into the wilderness as well to prepare for ministry. Whatever it is in the Bible, God prepares his servants in similar ways for separation, for preparation, and then for affirmation. There's just this way that God works. It doesn't involve climbing the ladder quickly. Everybody's looking for kind of a get rich quick this and a, a get into leadership quick that and a, a get here there and I want what I want so I get it now. We're in this instant gratification culture. God doesn't work that way. He separates his servants to prepare them. Number two, there's 
potentially some symbolic nature to this or some significance is you see the picture of what? God calling people out or away from unfaithful shepherds. The city center is where religious leaders are. They hold power. They oppress the people. They break their backs with man-made laws. The Pharisees are pompous in their robes. You'll see that next time when we talk a little bit about the way John the Baptist dressed. When you put him next to a Pharisee with their long robes and their phylacteries and all of their hoopla everywhere to show off their religiosity, they couldn't look more different. That's all by design at the hand of God when he contrasts these things. Well, here, they're being called out from false shepherds to prepare their hearts for the true one. And third, I think we could say that greatness begins where you least expect it. Greatness begins where you least expect it. You wouldn't pick the wilderness as being significant in the life of God's next great servant. I don't think we would in the natural sense. But God brings his best from a place of humility, be it physically or spiritually. God loves to work through the underdog. That's just how he works. And even uh, perhaps a a man or woman of, of great physical stature or of handsomeness or of beauty who's used mightily by the Lord. Sometimes we hear these statements like, God uses the runt of the litter, and you're like, the guy's 6'6". Six, six. Runt of what? You know, he's in ministry. It's only the good-looking people. It's only the people that sing really good. It's only this or that. But understand this. It's, it's, it's physical. Yes, it can be. David didn't look like much. Paul is short, historically told that he was bald down the middle with a bit of a hooked nose. Jesus has no stately manner that we would behold him and say, wow, what a handsome guy. So the chosen model, Jesus, with his flowy hair is out, all of that. But also spiritually, friends, a posture of the heart that even if you look like something in earthly terms, you don't think all that much of yourself internally. You come humble. That's the posture. Greatness begins where you least expect it whether that be physical humility, or if God's made you look like something or sound like something, your posture is still, I am but a beggar in need of him as well. It's a heart posture. And he's preaching, he's heralding, he's announcing. You gotta think of an ambassador standing out in the wilderness saying, repent, repent, the kingdom of heaven is near. It's time. The royal decree is, turn from your ways. That's the word repent means. You're going south, go north. Change your mind. Change your mind about what? Change your mind about sin. Change your mind about how you get into the kingdom. And change your mind about the king. There's a few erroneous ways in which the Jews viewed all of these things. Sin? Oh, please. I'm a son of Abraham. I'm ethnically in. The kingdom, the king, he's going to come, he's going to overthrow Rome, he's going to establish his kingdom, and we're going to rule and reign. You Gentiles will be lucky if we let you in. This is the mind of Judaism at this time. And what does John say? 
Repent, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. You change your mind about your works, there is filthy rags. You change your mind about this king, he's gonna come a little differently than you think. And you change your mind about even how being a Jew gets you in. All must turn from sin. All must put faith in him alone. That is the only way to enter through the narrow gate of the kingdom. And let me just press in here a little further by way of application for us today. Notice he does not present a Jesus with a money back guarantee. Hey, come check out some Jesus. Some try, uh, try out some Jesus and then, look, if you don't like it, money back guarantee or trying to be palatable. No, 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 this is repent. The kingdom of heaven is at hand. It is a monologue. It's a proclamation, not a conversation. Now, don't hear what I'm not saying. Treat the lunch, buy the latte, and talk to your friends about Christ. Absolutely. You don't fire hose people in Starbucks or BlackRock or wherever, Black Rifle. I know everyone's boycotting the liberal companies now or something. There's like a new person to cancel every week. I'm not keeping up. Shoot me an email. Wherever you get the lattes. It's a conversation, but understand when the gospel call goes out, it's a one-way conversation. Repent and believe. Place your faith in Christ. And then the, the dialogue is, okay, it's his way, not my way. I'll follow. He leads. My works, not enough. His works are what I need. This is John's preaching, and he says the kingdom of heaven is at hand. What does he mean by that? Well, the way they viewed the kingdom in the Gospels is kind of a now but not yet idea. I want you to understand this. You've got the coming physical kingdom, but there's also the spiritual sense in which all who place their faith in Christ are, are a part of the kingdom or brought into the kingdom. So right now, if you believe in Jesus Christ, the salvation of your soul, he's the savior of your life, he's the Lord of your life, you're a follower of Christ, you are, in a sense, spiritually, you're a part of the kingdom. So we would call this kingdom work. And this is what they're primarily focused on in these moments. And it's, it's, a, it's not like a one-time event. It's a series of events that unfold to bring about one single purpose by God. So what do I mean by that? Well, you have prophetic forerunners, and then you have Christ's coming, and then you'll have Christ's ministry, and then you'll have the cross. You have all of these things as Jesus moves through the crowds in his ministry, explaining the kingdom, offering the kingdom, calling them to repent and be a part of the kingdom, and to prepare for the kingdom. So when he says, repent for the kingdom of heaven is at hand, or come near, I believe he literally is saying, the Messiah is coming. Repent. Turn now. Get ready. Wash yourselves, you sinners. Stop looking at yourself thinking you're something and get ready because this isn't like, oh, one day. No, it's near. He is here. It's time. The day of reckoning has come. Believe in him. But the Jews weren't ready for that message. Their pride would keep them blinded. One commentator says, despite many similar warnings by the prophets, many of the people and most of the leaders were not prepared for John's message. What he said was shocking. It was unexpected, and it was downright unacceptable. It was inconceivable to them that as God's people, they had anything to do to inherit God's kingdom except be Jewish and wait for it to come to them. Every Jew was destined for the kingdom in their mind. Every Gentile was excluded except for a token handful of proselytes. Like, oh, Rahab, lucky her. 
Ruth, yeah, we let the Moabite in. Boaz. No. All who would repent of their sin could come. But the common Jewish thinking of the day was not that. And John completely shattered it. Verse 3, this is the one referred to by Isaiah the prophet when he said, the voice of one crying in the wilderness, make ready the way of the Lord, make his paths straight. He's pulling from Isaiah 40 verse 3. When in the original context, God is promising to bring his exiled people home. And the picture is a road. It's a way. And it's cleared of all obstacles so that he can redeem them. And I think of this in two ways. On one hand, I think of every obstacle being removed that would hinder the Messiah from coming and redeeming. We have seen his ancestry preserved. We have seen his life preserved as Herod attempts to slaughter him. And every baby born under two is murdered. And they're hoping to get rid of this one who might be the Messiah. We've seen time and time and time again, angels appear to direct Joseph and Mary, all to preserve the line. We've seen John's prophetic ministry set up and preserved. The path has been cleared of anything that would hinder the Messiah from coming and redeeming. But also now, John, in a sense, is presenting this message that clears the heart of any debris and any obstacles that would keep one from trusting in Christ. Now, your ethnicity as a Jew, get that out of the way. Your works, get that out of the way. Anything you thought you were, get that out of the way. Make the path clear that he might come, and the only ones who would come to him would come empty, with nothing to offer except faith in him alone. And, and what is the mentality of, of John the Baptist in his preaching? Why does he preach this way and why does he live this way? I think the best way to capture this is to think about what he says when later on his disciples come and they say, Rabbi, they call him Rabbi. Look at all the followers he has, talking about Jesus. All the people, they're all going to him, and he's baptizing them. They're basically saying, he's baptizing more people than you now. And John, in 2023 vernacular, kind of says, are you guys serious? That was the whole point. And he says in John 3, verse 30, he must increase, I must decrease. What did you think this was all about? Oh, you guys thought we were something, didn't you? You thought I was something. <laughs> you got it twisted. It's always been about him. Good. They're supposed to. In fact, you, all of you should go follow him. That was the whole purpose. And so in his preaching, who is it about? Christ. In his life, who is it for? Christ. How does he view himself? Humbly. He says, this is he on behalf of whom I said, after me comes a man who's a higher rank than I. He existed before me. And then what's his proclamation with the megaphone? He says, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. His whole purpose is look at him. Don't look at me. Live for him. Don't live for me. I'm not your guy. He's the guy. 
This is why Jesus, in Matthew 11, he calls John the Baptist the greatest. He says, there's no one greater than John the Baptist. Why? Because he is the servant of all. He's the forerunner who was not interested at all in himself, but only in fulfilling his purpose unto the glory of Christ. And this is how your life should be and mine. None of this is for us. We aren't the Christ. We'll point you to him. We're not building our own kingdom. We're preparing the world for his kingdom. We're not preaching our own vision. We're preaching one thing. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. I don't have five ways to be a better you this year, but I've got one way that will change all of you this year. It is repent of your sin and put your faith in Christ. That's it. All of Life's greatest transformations make their way onto the internet. And we look and say, wow, look what this person became. And everyone likes to be self-made and look what I've done and look what I've made. And, look at the, and, and they sell it all now. Hey, take my workshop for $499. I'll show you how to become an entrepreneur. You'll make $4 million next year. Wow, what an investment. I can flip houses like you. Tony Robbins, every single ad right now, or anybody else on YouTube is Tony Robbins from a beach telling me how to be better and he can show me how. That's whatever ad cycle I'm in. Maybe because I've been talking about this stuff, my phone is listening and they're sending me more Tony Robbins because the algorithm. I'm gonna yell in the middle of my office, repent, you algorithm. Now what do you send me? Not getting Joel Osteen sermons at that point, are you? Listen, there is a prayer we pray every week. 8.15 prayer meeting, if you serve on the early shift at Shepherd's House, we pray three things. Number one, for the lost to be found, and we praise God in that prayer for the baptisms and the salvations of people here. Number two, we pray. Everybody kind of knows what this prayer means. We say, hey, so-and-so, will you pray John the Baptist mentality for all of us across the campus? Yep. Third thing, we pray for the preaching of God's word in here. We pray for the equipped class, whoever's teaching it. And we pray for shepherd's kids as they evangelize our children and anything else going on with teaching on the campus. That second prayer is the key. I am convinced that the key to fruitful ministry is John the Baptist mentality. I think the key to lasting is John the Baptist mentality. What is it? He must increase, I must decrease. I look at someone and I don't think, what can I get from them? I think, what can I do for them? How might I be today a setup man for Christ in their life? This is the key to your ongoing earthly and eternal happiness. Are you decreasing? Is he increasing? In that the Lord will lead you through the details, through the differences, the nuances. Oh, sure, your life, my life, all of our lives be a little different in some ways. But one common thread will lead to you fulfilling your life's purpose. He must increase, we must decrease. He preached Christ. He pointed to Christ. And he lived his life to set everything up for Christ. Is that the way you're living? Is that the way I'm living? I pray our answer can be 
Yes.